Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Music Therapy podcast. I'm your host, Brian Locasio, and our guest today is North Carolina-based and is a music therapist. They did their undergrad at Appalachian State and got their master's at Slippery Rock. And right now, their work focuses around queer people and queer people of color, and they are currently pursuing additional training in analytical music therapy. I would like to welcome our guest for today, Freddie Perkins. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah. So one of the things that I like to ask guests when they come onto the show is to define music therapy, because a lot of you are music therapists, but we all have very unique definitions. Yeah. So it's actually funny because I don't necessarily ascribe to AMTA's definition of music therapy. Not that their definition is not an acceptable one or not a good one. It's just not, it does not resonate in my life. For me, music therapy is really much more of like a, a situated reciprocal relationship. And I think that's the the focus point for me in a lot of my work. So I think it's a reflexive process, definitely. So for me, it's a reflexive process where the music therapist and the client expand both individual and collective wellness through intentional music therapy experiences and um, an integrated reciprocal relationship. And I, I think for me, I use that definition just because it it feels a lot less like based in this medical jargon. It feels a lot less based in this Western um, ideology of, of medicine that I think we as music therapists get wrapped up in a lot in an, in an attempt to prove that we're good enough as music therapists. So I have kind of strayed from that. So yes, that is, that is my definition. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really cool that you're also incorporating like that concept of the reciprocal interactions between both parties. Cause that's really what it comes down to. That's how you're going to get those goals accomplished. Well, I think even in that respect, like even when I think about music therapy, you know, we always talk about the client therapist relationship. Um, but, you know, if you look at uh, writings and and, they, and the works of like Carolyn Kinney, like there's that entity of music is also its own thing. So it's really like a three way relationship uh, between like the music therapist, the music and the the client right mm -hmm, absolutely when we talk about music i think we talk about it as this thing that we use or that we manipulate right whereas music is almost is it's its own entity it's its own being in the same way that the therapist and the, the client are both their own entities and it's that interrelationship between the three that i think really allows for that collective wellness and for that expansion of of self absolutely thank you and then for how it works, can you give us an example, um, whether in your practice or in your philosophy? Yeah. So I think for me, the way that my work has really kind of changed from when I was a from when I was an early professional and a student is I'm so less focused on a specific goal, right? Like I'm so less focused on knowing a diagnosis or knowing symptoms, right? Because that's not the the center focus of my work, right? Like I care more about the context of the individual. So sure, it it's helpful to know like if there's a diagnosis and what those symptoms may look like and what the presenting issue is. And also it's important to know what else is going on with that individual outside of just that diagnosis, because not everyone presents the same diagnosis in the same way. I think autism spectrum disorders are a great example of that. I think we often get wrapped up in, oh, when I see someone with autism, I know that they're going to do X, Y, and Z, whereas like they may, but there's no guarantee that they're going mm -hmm. to. So it's really important to get the rest of the content, the rest of the story, like what it, what do their systems look like? What's their home life look like? What's their life in school or in their community or in their job or what other um, environments that they find themselves in? Because we're so socially constructed as individuals and the way we understand ourselves is socially constructed and interrelated to our relationships with others, that that is how I go about my work. Like a lot of my music therapy work opens up dialogues and conversations for what's happening in the world in relationship to the individual. So like a good example of it is I do an intensive outpatient group for a facility here in North Carolina. And oftentimes I'll do some, especially now with COVID, I've been doing a lot of receptive music 
listening activities and Mm -hmm. um, a lot of lyric analysis and song discussion. And in those discussions, like, sure, I could sit there and say, well, how can we use music to be a coping skill to help you when you're feeling anxious or when you're feeling da 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 da. But more really, like I open up that space and we talk about societal standards and and how societal expectations and and gender expectations and role expectations may be contributing to the ways in which they experience that anxiety or the ways in which they're experiencing themselves and have all this self-doubt or have these yeah. these thoughts of depression or whatever else that is the the symptoms right um so yeah. I, my music therapy journey has really brought me to a space where that is a lot of the work that I do, which I love doing because I love having those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds to me like kind of what you're saying is getting to the root of the actual problem as opposed to just being like music therapy can help with this. But why is it happening? Yes, I think maybe more so what it is. It's it's less looking at the it's it's not looking at the diagnosis as the problem. Right. I think that's another yeah. thing. Is we, we look at the diagnosis as the problem that needs to be fixed, whereas I'm more concerned about what is happening around the individual that is influencing their ways of being and affect how they themselves view the diagnosis. Right. Like we talk a lot about in my groups, how mental health has a big stigma around it and it's not held in the highest regard and it's not shown well in the media. And so oftentimes the clients that I work with talk about how they feel like their their families or their friends treat them differently or coddle them or, or make it seem as though they, they can't take care of themselves anymore because now they have a, a diagnosis that was given to them. So that automatically means they're less than. And so we talk about that and that kind of sets a foundation for, well, how do we overcome that and how do we work towards changing that not only for ourselves but maybe for the people that are around us and affecting change maybe more on a on a social level well that sounds like a very impactful approach as well thanks i try <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about your journey um in music therapy so i kind of want to hear a little bit more about that um what led you to music therapy oh my god i always love telling the story so originally when I was in high school, senior year, right, when we have to make all the big life decisions, like where we're going to go, what we're going to do. And my parents set me down and they had a good old kiki with me and said, you know, we don't really see music as being a, a career thing for you. We see it more as a hobby and we think you should do something that's more financially stable. And so... Um, they kind of pushed computer science on me. And so in applying, oh, wow. in applying to schools, like that was the thought, like I was going to go to school for computer science. And um, I ended up choosing app because, you know, they gave me the most money. And one of the scholarships they gave me was for computer science, for being a, a science major. But I also wanted to see, well, let's see if I can do this music thing. So I auditioned for the music school as well. Um, But at the time, I had no clue what I would want to do in music. Um, I didn't know music therapy existed at the time. All all I knew was music education and performance. And I knew I did not want to teach children. And so I said, well, I guess that leaves performance. And at that time in my life, I was not of the caliber (laughs) to be a performance (laughs) major, to put it nicely. Yeah. My applied professor, my saxophone professor, saw something in me. He said, well, um, I can take you on as a minor and um, we can work with you in the first semester and see if we can get you up to speed to re-audition. I said, "Okay, let's do that. And the summer before my freshman year, actually, one of my scholarships, part of the deal was like you went the summer before and you took some classes and you took your freshman seminar in like a math class and you kind of built community or with other people that had similar science oriented majors. And I went and, you know, I remember I was sitting in, I think it was like an algebra one college level class. And I was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> like I had that realization. I said, I don't want to yep. sit. I don't want to sit at a desk and stare at a computer screen, which is really funny to say now, given the state of the world. But um, 
so I did some research and I was like, well, what else exists for in music? And I learned that Appalachian State had a music theory program. And so I emailed the professor, uh, Dr. Kathy McKinney, and talked to her about it. And she said that I could take the intro class without necessarily being a major. Because I said, I said, well, I'm a minor. And she said, that's fine. And immediately after I had that conversation, I went and changed every single one of my classes from like, math oriented things to any music class that I could get into as a minor to kind of set myself up in the event that I did get accepted. That way I wouldn't be so far behind. And I remember I got a phone call from my mom and she flipped out. She was like, this is not what we talked about. And we said you were going to do this and da 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 Because I'm an only child. So my mother was very much a helicopter mom. Like the, yeah. one, like the one that I used the parent portal access on, on the <laughs> online service and looked up your schedule and could see when changes were made. That was her. And um, I can relate. Oh, my God. And so I went through that and I had to that was a big moment for me because I had to kind of fight for myself and advocate for myself because um, I would usually be one that would bend to my mother's will to make her happy. Um, but I stuck up for myself then and I took the intro class and I loved it and I re-auditioned at the end of my first semester and got in and it's been music therapy ever since. Wow. That's a really, really cool story, especially for like self-advocacy. She fully supports it now. It took her a while. I think she just needed to see that there were jobs that existed and that it was a thing. Cause she, I think it was one of those things where she knew nothing about it. So in her head, she was like, I don't know what this is going to mean for my child. Yeah. And most people, I would say most parents don't, you know, AMTA just came out and said there was 9,000 MTBCs or sorry, not AMTA CBMT just did. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 9,000 out of all the people in the U S alone, that's a very small percentage. Right. Well, speaking of that and kind of leading into your career now, you know, you've gone through the music therapy program, you're in your masters. What does it look like for you currently? Music therapy. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, in COVID times. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm probably, I'm no different than a lot of other music therapists, but a lot of my stuff is virtual and, uh, and via Zoom. Um, I am fortunate enough to, the outpatient groups that I do run are in person. So I kind of get to do some in-person stuff there with safety precautions. But other than that, it's all virtual. I, um, I just started private practice. And so I'm seeing people individually. And so, as I kind of mentioned earlier, a lot of my music is more on the receptive side of things because, you know, a lot of my folks that I work with don't have access to instruments or don't have access to mm -hmm. the things that I may I would usually bring myself to to a session and so it's really been interesting to to switch to more of a receptive means of doing music therapy which I kind of had to like give myself permission to do because I think there was a there was a time in the beginning when I was like I don't feel like I'm a music therapist or I don't feel like I'm doing music therapy because it's all yes receptive <laughs> and where's I get where's that. the active part and what's this and I kind of had to like sit down with myself and say there's no way like, first of all, there's no one way to be music therapists, right? So let's let's put that out there. And secondly, you know, the world is in a really abnormal place right now. So to have the expectation that I would be able to do my job in a normal fashion against abnormal circumstances is unrealistic. <laughs> and so I had to give myself that that pep talk. And now, like, I'm completely okay with the way in which I do music therapy. Like folks that I work with get a, I, I feel like they get a lot out of it. They say they get a lot out of it or it opens up the space for a lot of really great conversations and a lot of great musical moments that happen despite it not looking necessarily the way it looked when I was in my undergrad. Could you see yourself continuing it in this new style once hopefully quarantine and things are over? Do you think this is something that you might implement into your practice outside of a pandemic circumstance? I mean, certainly, right? Like I, like I love the benefit of being able to work from my house. I know other people struggle and all the ex extroverts in the world are like pining for people attention. I'm an introvert. And so being Big in my extrovert. house, right. Being in my house at my desk, and just being me and my dog and then my roommate and his dog now and again when I feel like being social, like it's great. <laughs> it's great <laughs> for me. Like I don't necessarily feel like I am in need of 
the in-person stuff as much as maybe some other people are in need of it. But no, I could definitely see it being a part of my my practice moving forward, right? Like it's because I'm just starting private practice. Like this is this is all <laughs> I know for my private practice. And and financially it works out really great because now I don't have to like think about renting a space and how I'm gonna pay yeah. for that and getting that space set up. Yeah, talk about, you know, I I think the music therapy world and many other professions are talking about equity and things like that right now. And I think that's a really good point. Doing these virtual sessions, it's much more cost effective, especially if you're going to like drive to people's houses and you don't have a space. There's a lot of benefits in that aspect as well. Right. Yeah. So one of the biggest things about this show is that we highlight how individuals are innovative in music therapy. So my question for you is, how are you innovative in the field? Well, it's interesting that you ask because in my head, I'm like, am I innovative? Like, am I really yeah. doing anything that's different or out the box? And my initial answer is no, right? I'm just trying to do the best that I can do in all honesty and taking it a, a day at a time. But I feel if there's something to be said in terms of innovativeness as it relates to me, I think a lot of where I'm kind of directing my focus is maybe deemed innovative. It's not like I started it, right? Like, let's let mm-hmm. me put that disclaimer out. Like, I'm not the the originator of anything, but I, I find myself really digging into the work that fulfills me, right? And that has really shifted to working with teens and adults who are queer and, and are queer people of color and really trying to facilitate and hold spaces for them to discover who they are and find their authentic selves and to attune to those voices that often get so drowned out in the bigger conversation. So I guess if I was to say anything about innovation, maybe that, but even that, like that doesn't even necessarily feel innovative to me. It feels like something that should just be happening across the board, but within music therapy, is kind of kind of hurts my heart a little bit, but um, that's not necessarily happening in the ways that it should collectively. I think there are definitely pockets of music therapists out there. Um, like I think about the work of uh, Annette Whitehead Plue, and I think about Spencer Hardy and, and Michelle Fornash, and lots of queer music therapists out there who are doing that work. Yourself too, and, and Brian. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> who are doing that work hey. in um, in the ways that make sense for them. And and I wish it was something that was happening more more of, especially for Black and Brown folks who need who need therapists and who need therapists that look like them and 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 kind of get at least a little bit of what their lived experience is. Yes, and absolutely. And that was really well said. Although you don't need my validation to know that. <laughs> and that brings us to our topic today. And that is therapist identity and authenticity in the therapeutic relationship. So I didn't know if before we get started, if you just want to talk a little bit on that and kind of where you want to go with it. This is, oh my God, it's such a big topic and I could probably literally talk for hours and hours, but I have to keep in mind that this podcast is only like maybe an hour. (laughs) Um, I I think for me, authenticity is a really personal thing in, in that I feel like it's a journey that I have been on and a journey that I'm still on in a lot of ways and And really thinking about the ways in which my views of music therapy, my views and relationships with music, as well as with other people, are so deeply interconnected to my identities and kind of uncovering that and letting that be a guiding force in my work as a music therapist. Because I think definitely in the earlier parts of my just my life in general, but maybe more specifically my career as a music therapist or better yet as a music therapy student, kind of pushing away or resisting or avoiding those parts of myself that I felt weren't good enough or the parts of myself that I felt could not be seen or weren't able to be handled by others or that would put me in a space of possibly being at risk or unsafe that are now, it's it's now flipped. And I'm like, I, I lean into those a lot. And I, and I find myself encouraging um, the, the folks that I work with to also lean into those things. When you first started out, 
and having those identities that you're talking about and which ones to lean into and which ones to not necessarily repress, but kind of juggle which ones you're going to lean into at what time. Mm-hmm. What was it like juggling those identities? Like which ones did you have to juggle? Oh, it's hard. I think for me, the big two, the big two in my life have always been uh, my identity as a black man and then my identity as a queer person, specifically a gay person and and really juggling those and playing the good old game called code switching and figuring out where is this identity accepted and where is it not? And when can I bring this one out? And when does this one need to take a back seat? Right. Because I, because at that time, I obviously thought that was a thing. You could hide them. They could take back seats. But in all reality, they can't. They don't take back seats as much as you may try to get them to take back seats. They're still existent. They're still always there. And that has been a thing ever since I was a, a kid. Right. Like we I looked I had to look a lot at the ways in which I grew up and the messages that I received and was told when it came to what does it mean to be black and having that always more often than not being seen as a bad thing and the same thing with being queer. And at that time, no one was even having the conversation of what do those two things look like together? So it was a lot of, a lot of feeling scattered and a lot of feeling not whole in a lot of ways. And I never really realized how much of an impact some of those earlier messages and those experiences that I went through impacted my my clinical work. Like I never thought about it until um, I was kind of encouraged to do so in my master's program. Um, and so I'm really thankful to have been able to do some of that work and to really do some of that thinking. A lot of music therapy students knowing the demographic of mainly white cisgendered females going into a profession. And for a lot of people, the professors kind of mimicking that for the most part. How do you think that influenced you going through schooling? Knowing that, you know, most, I don't know which professors you had or what they, their identities were, but did you find that there was a disconnect between that as well? I think for me, I went to a predominantly white institution. Appalachian State is, is real white, Um, and for the most part, if you were a person of color that was at that school, it was kind of assumed that you were there for sports. (laughs) Um, and I think just in the music school and the music building, I, my freshman year, I think I was one of maybe four, four black people. And then that, that number kind of increased, as I went through the rest of my my undergrad. And by the end of my senior year, I was one of, of two black people in the, my music therapy program. The other um, young woman, she was two years under me. So in my graduating class, I was the only black person there. And I think a lot of times I often try to make myself be seen as good enough, like always wanting to make other people happy and always wanting to make other people comfortable and doing whatever I could that would allude to that or that would would get me that, get me that acceptance because I thought that's what I needed. I needed to be accepted. I needed to be loved. And the only way to do that was to make other people feel comfortable around me. And so particularly at App State, being that it was primarily white, I often found myself trying to, as best I could, like diminish my blackness, which obviously like you can look at me and tell that was just not going to be a thing. But to my best attempt, what I ended up doing was amplifying another aspect of myself to draw attention away from. And in that instance, it ended up being my queerness. And so I fed into every, well, not every, but I fed into a lot of stereotypes of of what gay men were. I went above and beyond to be loud. I went above and beyond to be sassy and and to just say what was ever was on my mind and because it would make people laugh. And I leaned into that like hardcore because people would laugh with me, not at me. And people would want to be around me and it would gain me the acceptance that I th- I think I wanted at that time. And that's kind of how I played it, right? But I, I think there was always a part of me that knew that wasn't really who I was and knew that just wasn't, wasn't the T, right? Because I even think about the ways in which I thought about 
music therapy at that time were a little different than what was being taught because I don't know what this is like in other institutions, but at least when I was in school, you know, we get taught the big things. We get taught on how to work with kids with, with disabilities. We get taught on how to work with folks with neurological disorders. We get taught to work with folks with mental health disorders and mental health issues. And that kind of covered the bases and the, and the practicums reflected that as well. And I always found myself gravitating towards the things that weren't necessarily talked about in school. So I found myself back then then really wanting to work with teens and particularly teens uh, with trauma histories because that was what my interest was. And at the time, it made sense because the music that I liked to listen to would, would be often what resonated with that age group. And so I had our, I already felt a connection in that way. Um, and so when I had practicums where I worked with adolescents, I felt like that's where I, for lack of a better word, shined the most, like I had the most fun mm -hmm. in those sessions. And even the way I thought about planning those sessions was really different. It wasn't me trying to make a song that's going to help you learn your alphabet. It's, it's, it's not me playing a song that's going to help you reminisce about times from several years ago, right? Like that, that just was not of interest to me. I wanted to be in the moment. I wanted to to address the things that that weren't taught in school more like I wanted to get to maybe the heart of people maybe maybe that's what that was like even as I'm talking about it now I, I feel like I'm still in process of figuring out what that all was yeah um and I even remember being in my uh like functional guitar and piano classes where we have to bring in songs and share them and everyone around me was bringing in giant bringing in James Taylor and the Beatles and Elvis. <laughs> and meanwhile, here's me. I'm bringing in Janet Jackson and I'm bringing in TLC and I'm bringing in yes. everything that was so, so right. So far left from, <laughs> from yeah. what others were bringing in. And it was funny because I remember getting so much, not pushback, but I would get a lot of complaints from my classmates because they would say things like, well, these chords are really hard or, or, or this is really hard to play. And and in my head, I was like, I never I guess I never really thought about it. Um, but I think maybe on a subconscious level, it felt like a it was a rejection. Right. Because here you are like music is definitely an extension of the self. And I was bringing in stuff that I liked to listen to and that, that I thought other people would could connect to if they looked like me and to have that kind of the first thing be said, oh, well, that's too hard or this needs to be simplified felt like, again, like what I was bringing to the table was not good enough or was not acceptable. And at the time, I didn't think much of it. But reflecting on it now, I was like, that that would have been a lot to to kind of sit with and to kind of have to take in. It's even funny too, like even in the role plays, because you know we always have to do the role plays mm -hmm. in class where you 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 uh, play out what the experience was. Like there was one role play in particular where it was a group of teens, and I had to be a teen, and like I played that thing. Like if you could get Oscars <laughs> for <laughs> for classroom mock session performances, I feel like yeah. I had earned that that Oscar. I was Meryl Streep in that <laughs> moment. And and I think it's because I felt just I think maybe on some deep level, I, f I felt what that character was. I had related yeah. to that character. I knew what it was like to be the teen that didn't feel accepted and the teen that felt like they were always kind of the afterthought or always felt like they they weren't good enough. And so playing that role, digging into that kind of emotion, that anger was not hard. Whereas any other role was felt really difficult to do at times, but besides the point. And then it's even funny too, like my graduate professor had this really interesting conversation with me where she said, you know, it's not surprising that the population you wanted to work with back when you were in school was what it was, which was teens, which was trauma, which was all that thing, all that stuff, because your life in some ways paralleled that. Right. Even your connection to the music that you listened to, like that was during a time that was very much in process for me 
to work through those identities and work through those things. I mean, adolescence in general is a time in all of our lives where we, <laughs> no are, where we are sorting through every identity we possess and trying, mm-hmm. trying on different hats to see which one fits and which one looks the best in the mirror. And so she put that to me and, and posed that to me. And I said, wow, I guess I had never thought of it that way. And I guess that's why I was so gung-ho about it. I mean, even my internship, I I had to go somewhere with teens. Like I did not want to go anywhere else. And I was fortunate enough to get an internship at a children's home that was primarily focused around trauma. And like all the kids there were, were black and brown kids. Like they looked like me. And that experience felt so fulfilling in a lot of ways to kind of be in a space where I looked like them, they looked like me. We had some similar understandings. They were still, in a lot of ways, very different for me. So there was always room for me to grow and expand in my understanding. But it felt, in a weird way, it kind of felt like home. And then to see what they had to go through on their day-to-day, whether it was figuring out, like, where are they going to be placed? Are they going to get to go back home? Their day-to-day interactions with their house parents, the fact that they were required to go to church because the children's home was associated with a denominational church that I cannot remember at this time. And me thinking to myself, like, that is crazy to me. (laughs) Like, you are forcing these kids to go to church. And in so many ways, a lot of them did not ascribe to that way of thinking. And me being able to kind of bring myself into that space, like, they all knew I was queer, they knew I was Black, and that was okay. Because many of them were that. And being able to share space with them in groups and create groups for them, right? Like I got to do a case study group for the queer kids and and really holding that space and, and talking about what is it like <laughs> to be, what is it like to be queer, right? Looking back on it, if I could go back, I would have also dug into what's it like to be a person of color too. Hindsight is twenty twenty though. And so that I think was one of the best experiences I had clinically was during my internship and those interactions. And I think coming out of that, I so badly wanted to replicate that in the jobs that I've held since then. And I've never been able to replicate that in any way. And I've never felt as fulfilled or as happy in my work as I did during that. And I think that opened up a lot of space for conversation to, for me to think about well, what do I really want to do? And doing a lot of this internal work and a lot of this unlearning of things and relearning of things as they relate to my identities of being black and being queer, it's, it's led me to where I am now. And like, I want to work with queer people of color. Like, I want to do that work. Like, that's what makes me happy. That's what, that's what gets me out of bed every day, right? Like, no knocks yeah. to the music therapists that do the stuff that we always read about in journals. No knocks to that, right? Because that has its place and it's important and it's valuable. But I always knew that just was not me. There's a lot of amazing and incredible things that you've said so far. And we'll continue to talk about those right after this commercial break. Welcome back. We just got done talking a little bit about identity and how that interplayed with undergraduate into internship into the professional world. And what you were last talking about, it seemed like was trying to replicate that process and that feeling within internship of working with queer people of color and then moving that into the professional world. So one of the questions that I have regarding identity and authenticity in sessions for you Mm -hmm. is what are ways that your identity can empower your clients? Because you started to touch on that a little bit and I I want to see your thoughts on it. Yeah. So I think for me, something that I have kind of come to understand is that just showcasing your identity 
in itself is is empowering, not only for your clients, potentially, but for you. Right. Because I always lived in this space where I thought I had to conceal my identities. Right. Especially being a black music therapist that is all of six foot four. And the first question I usually get from people when they meet me is, oh, you must have played football and then having to like slowly break their hearts when I tell them that I did not. (laughs) And then being in clinical spaces where oftentimes the majority of the group would be white. And oftentimes, depending on what job I had, white women. And so having to historically understand what the relationship between black men and white women are and trying to find ways in which to make myself, again, be more digestible for them, to make them feel comfortable. So um, I talk a lot about like physically making myself smaller. Like I would literally like hunch over my guitar, sit back in my chair, find ways to not physically look like a threat. And then, and, and then verbally always trying to be conscious of what I was saying and how I was coming across. And in those spaces and predominantly white female spaces, I would, I would probably amp up my, my queerness a little bit more than normal. But then if I was in spaces where there were men, if there were cis straight men in the room, then I would find myself overthinking about my mannerisms and my, the expressiveness in my voice. And like, do I sound really gay right now? And what's my body saying? Like I would do all of that internal dialoguing. And what I learned was that takes me so far out of being present in the space that I am no good to anyone (laughs) because I just was not focused on what was happening in group because I was so caught up in my own existence and how I was performing in the space. And now I'm in this headspace of I'm going to bring me into sessions and not hide it. And if it feels appropriate to bring up, then we have the conversation. And I think more importantly, what bringing myself into spaces has done for me, it has empowered me to ask clients about their identities and and hold space for them to bring themselves into group as well. That is something that I am so grateful for and grateful to have that ability to to facilitate that. Like I've been in groups where we talk about what's it like to to be queer. Like just the other day, I was having a conversation in group with a client that said that they have come to this new understanding of their gender and that and their and their pronouns have changed and they identify as being non-binary and that was not where they started when we first when I first saw them in groups now I'm not saying that I attributed to all of that but just to kind of be on that journey with them to be a part of that processing for them really makes me smile because it affirms that my way of being is enough. It affirms that I am enough, like who I am is enough. And being able to draw on my experiences and have them influence how I interact with others, I am grateful for. And that feels so counter to what we're told in school, right? Because we're always told it's not about you. Don't bring yourself into the session. It's like you are not the focus point. And I think I agree with that to some extent, right? Like the center focus, like you are not center stage because it's, it's not about you. However, you can't not bring yourself into groups. You can't not bring who you are because that's what makes you you. That's what makes you a different music therapist than the other music therapists up the street. Right. Like the way that I'm going to go about doing music therapy is going to be different than you. It's going to be different than anyone else, because my lived experience and my identities impact that. And that may be something that that client or that group may need or may benefit from experiencing. Right. And, you know, what? if they don't, if it if it's not their thing, that that's okay too. But at the end of the day, I owe it to myself to be true to me. We always talk about in therapy how there's a responsibility of the client to be vulnerable and to share themselves and to and to put themselves out there, but we never talk about what the reciprocity of that is. We don't, right? Like how do you have a relationship with someone 
right? Because the therapeutic relationship at the end of the day is still a relationship. Like how do you expect someone to tell you everything about their lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the ambivalent, and yet you sit there and you share nothing or you you don't bring any of you into the space. That, that feels very one-sided. That feels very hierarchical. And kind of shedding that thought and being like, this is a shared space, an egalitarian space. This this is a space for equity. Like I'm a share yeah. too if it feels appropriate, right? If it if it feels like it's for the, the client's benefit, sure, I'll share something because that feels like a relationship. It feels relational. I think that's the big thing is I I really strive to be relational and not hierarchical because I'm not the expert in that space. Right. And I think that's another thing I had to tell myself, too, that just because I hold a title of therapist does not mean I have every answer. And so I'm real upfront with people in spaces. I'm like, I don't know the answer or, you know, what? I'm not really sure how to respond to this. Right. Because that's honest. That's that's how I'm feeling. And so to try to put on a front and pretend something else ain't doing nobody no no good. And so, yeah, I think authenticity goes so far <laughs> in sessions. And I think that in itself builds the connection, the rapport we always talk about, what what needs to be built in order for the, the therapeutic space to really take hold and for growth and expansion to happen. And I think if you are relational and you are reciprocal within that relationship, then you're able to grow as a therapist as opposed to it feeling like it all is the responsibility of the client. And it takes power away from just the client and saying like, oh, it's the client's fault. You also can't like say that that's less likely to happen. As we know, that's not the case. But it also takes the idea of that away because you have to realize what you're bringing into the session. And it really makes you reflect on that relationship. Yeah, exactly. Because that relationship is also impacting, just like we talk about the systems that they come from and how their systems impact them. This relationship also impacts them. It may be in the smallest ways. Like it was so it was so interesting the other day in one of my groups that uh, I do virtually, one of the the women in the group, she said, you know what, you know, Freddie, the other day, I think I did some music therapy for myself. And, and I said, oh, OK, really? Like, what'd you do? <laughs> and she was like, you know, it really resonated with me when you said that, you know, oftentimes the music that we find ourselves listening to over and over again may in some way parallel our own lives. And she said, there was a song that I couldn't get out of my head that I kept listening to, and I didn't understand why. And then I thought about what you said, and I listened to it again and really thought about the lyrics, and I was able to kind of think of ways in which this may relate to me. Like, even in that moment, like her saying that, I'm like, perfect. I'm glad that you felt like you were able to gain something from something that took place in our dialogue or something that we discussed, right? Like, hey, then I did something, right? It may not change her life dramatically in any way, but you know what? There was some type of takeaway. And for me, I'm like, cool. That just affirmed for me that, you know what? Me being me and just kind of sharing my thoughts and, and kind of my, my thinking, that did something, right? It, it got them to, to try something a little different or it, it encouraged them to, to try something a little different. And... <sighs> Like that for me is, is, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've really empowered them to kind of take it on themselves. So not just, it sounds like they're applying it in real life and that's what we kind of hope for. And it sounds incredible that you're empowering your clients to be authentic through your authenticity. And I think that's, that's just a huge takeaway, especially looking at how you were talking about being a queer music therapist of color and talking about that quote unquote, like, hierarchy when you're navigating those two roles of, okay, I'm the therapist and telling you all these things and listening back and I'm not giving anything like talk about a hierarchy. Most of us are, as I've said, <laughs> I could say it all day, white cis females. Mm -hmm. And then if you're working with clients of color, I mean, to some degree, you'd have to question what's the effectiveness of that versus having somebody in that relationship that has the same identity or similar identity. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think another thing too, like a big part of the authenticity that I attempt to bring in every session I do, it's admitting when I don't know something, 
right? I think I said it before, but I'll say it again. Like I often admit, I feel like I maybe do this more than I probably should, but I preface a lot of things by saying, you know what? I, I'm here to recognize that I don't know the lived experience of what it's like to be a woman. Don't know it. Don't know what the lived experience is to be uh, a woman of color or to be X, Y, and Z. And, <laughs> and this is what I'm sensing, or this is what I'm getting, but I'm wondering what it, how that role or how that identity impacts your way of being. Right. And yeah, just kind of owning what I don't know feels, honestly, it feels more like a relief than anything <laughs> to say, yeah. I don't know. I do not have the answer. <laughs> and you know what? It's not my responsibility to have the answer. <laughs> yes. And I think that's wonderful to hear for some of our listeners who are students and new professionals is that, yeah, our job isn't to know every single aspect of everything and know exactly how to fix it. Mm-hmm. It's it's to just be in that moment and offer what you can provide. Like you've been saying this whole time, that ties directly back to identity and authenticity. And sometimes the benefits can be even greater when you admit that to your clients because that shows that you're willing to disclose, Right. you know, this is where I'm at. It's a, it's a modeling thing too, right? Because if because oftentimes, more often than not, whether we want them to or not, our clients look to us as experts, right? Whether we own up to it, whether we own it or not, they they look to us for that. And so if we're modeling this behavior of I'm supposed to know all the answers, then what does that tell them, right? That I'm supposed to know all the answers. And if I don't know all the answers, then I'm failing, right? And I, I break that wall down real quick. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> I don't know where to begin or I'll be quick to say I feel stuck in the ways that you are saying you feel stuck. I also feel stuck or I'll share what I'm feeling like if people share something in group and I'm like saying you saying that I'm feeling this or I'm feeling this in this part of my body or oftentimes uh, what they'll say will influence what I do musically. Like I have one client that I see through my private practice who was sharing with me about his relationship with his daughter's mother and kind of the back and forth of that relationship. And I'm hearing him talk and share and explain. And a song popped in my head and I was like, I want to share this song. And so I like broke out a song, pulled up ultimate guitar tabs and went on my keyboard and- and Not sponsored. Right, (laughs) not sponsored. and, And shared that song. And I did not expect the response that I got, right? Because really all I was doing was sharing something that popped up for me, right? Like this idea of the countertransferences that come up in therapy inevitably and sharing that and putting that out there. And it opened up this, this conversation that we got into just based off of something I thought of in the moment. I think that right there is that reciprocity, that relational aspect of, of therapy that I try my best to hone in on and focus on. I definitely think that everything you're saying is something that resonates with one therapist, regardless of all the intersectionality within their identities that they have. Speaking on all these points, I do want to draw to a specific study that I wanted to reference for this amazing conversation and episode. And that is by Claire Hutchison and Kyle Ping. And this is actually within one of their university classes that they had under the supervision of Dr. Charles Choi, mm-hmm. Pepperdine University. But this specific idea of identity and culture and authenticity was put through the perspective and lens of a third culture kid or TCK, which is defined as an individual who has spent his or her or their developmental years in a culture apart from their own. Mm-hmm. But th- I think that also ties into intersectionality of identities. So I think you can look at this through several lenses. But they looked at it through this idea of the communication theory of identity, or CTI. And it's a theoretical framework where individuals have to negotiate parts of their identity. So all the things that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And they found four layers And they particularly talked about three of them. And the first was the personal layer, also known as I am this person, I fit into these categories, but I don't truly fit into one completely. And that's what they found with these people, let's say who are like first generation children Mm -hmm. uh, within a new country, but it can also be, for instance, a first generation, like queer individual from a family and 
South Dakota or something like that. There's a lot of ways you could look at it. Mm-hmm. The second layer is relational or identity is mutually negotiated and jointly formed through relationships. So kind of that nurture theory. And there's two kinds within relational where there's the internal identity of self. And the second is the identity that you modify according to descriptions and categorizations with others, which has to do with code switching and things like that. And how you're kind of talking about navigating between sometimes with women shifting to more of a queerness as opposed to more of like a masculinity when in the presence of men, um, cis men within groups. And then the third one is enactment, which is traveling between the layers. But the fourth one is communal, where the individual's identity is attached to a larger group. So that's what I'd think of within this concept of like a third culture or individuals who are both queer and people of color, like those little minute groups that is all of them. So I just want to talk about those four layers and kind of dive in. That was a lot of information. Yeah, I'm probably going to ask you to send me that article after this. Because that sounds like something that should probably be in my thesis. So, Yeah, no problem. It's it's a really incredible article. Um, I will say it was, it cited a lot of other great articles as well, including one by Hetch and Warren in 2005. But it's just talking about individuals struggling with communicating their identities And there's these ideas of identity gaps, and that is where the two conflict with each other. So I will definitely send that ahead and link it in the description for you all. But to kind of just talk on all those different kinds of identity, you know, you have your personal identity, your relational identity. What goes through your head when you're hearing all this? I think the first thing that I kind of think of is how there can be such differences between those forms of identities, right? Like I think about my own coming out process and my understanding of my identity and feeling like, you know, for me, I feel like I kind of settled into an understanding of what that was around my teenage years. But then obviously like the relational identity is something that constantly remained in flux throughout my whole life and still does in many ways, whether I'm aware of it or not. And just kind of acknowledging that multifacetedness, right? Like, I, it's so funny. I was watching a, a TikTok the other day where um, the TikToker was talking about code switching and saying, yeah. and he was, at the, I, he was posed a question and he was like, is code switching a superpower or a struggle? And he was like, it's both. Yeah, because there is a, you know, W.E. Du Bois talks about this idea of double consciousness and how, you know, people from within marginalized identities, for example, so black people, we have this double consciousness because we know what it's like to live as black people. We know what that experience is and we know how to navigate that. And also we know how to navigate a society that is is predominantly white and that whiteness. So we, it's almost like being mm. able to, it's in a similar vein. I think the, the most, the way to make it most of it is like being able to speak two different languages, right. And being able to, to interact with two groups. Whereas, you know, white people only know their experiences of whiteness because their culture is also of that, but they don't have the language and they don't have the, the skills developed to then go into black spaces or any other type of minoritized space. Um, so in that respect, like this idea of double consciousness and this idea of, of code switching is a power, right? Because we can manipulate, yeah. we as people of color can then manipulate that and use it in a way that can benefit us, right? Like we can use it for acceptance. We can use it to to kind of guarantee some safety in some ways. And we can use it to, to get a leg up in whatever way that looks like. And also it's a struggle because there's this sacrifice that has to come with it. And there's these negotiations that are made in doing that code switching. There's this dialogue that you go, that you go back and forth in your head with what are you what are you having to let go of and what are you having to sacrifice in order to get that leg up or in order to fit in or, and to be accepted and you know for me for a long time i rejected my blackness like it was like it was covid like it was miss rona herself <laughs> and And it was just not something I wanted to own. Like I did not, like I didn't, like growing up, I always felt 
like I was not good enough for the black kids because they always told me that I spoke like I was white, like I talked white. And so therefore, I, they thought that I thought I was better than them and that I and so I didn't fit into those groups. And um, so then I would try to go fit in with the white kids. And um, of course, can't really fit in with the white kids because surprise, not white. And so I ended up what I what I did is I, I essentially was like, well, I felt like I had to pick some side. I had to go somewhere. I had to fit into some type of group. And so I sacrificed my blackness then more willingly than I should, than I would probably would like to admit. I sacrificed a lot of that and instead leaned into things that were more white centered, right? Like I even think about, like when I think about my musical choices, when I think about my choices of music, like my first CD that I ever purchased was Britney Spears. Like when she first came out, that was the first CD I purchased. And then following that was Christina. And I found myself aligning and listening to a lot of this pop, popular music, pop culture music that was at the time back then were these, these blonde haired, blue eyed girls that were just adored by all. And I think in some way I wanted that. And so I said, well, if I listen to it, maybe that'll, maybe that'll get it. That'll, that'll give that to me. And I rejected things that weren't that. So I rejected things that were more black centered. So I didn't listen to rap and hip hop music um, to the same extent as some of my black peers. Like, and like, I didn't get that. I didn't understand that. Or I, I looked at that, actually looked down upon that. I thought, oh, well, that's too ghetto or that's too this. And people who listen to that music, they end up in jail or they're, they're going to get shot or they only do drugs and they they do X, Y, and Z. Like it was really a sacrifice of having to give that, to really give up a sense of connection to that aspect of my identity in order to feel like I could fit in with the dominant group, with the popular kids. Let's, let's say that. And for me, what that led to is that led to a lot of like internalized racism that I dealt with for, for many years and, not going out of my way to make connections with some of my family members because I, in my head, I had created this narrative that they were were shady or they were less than ideal. Um, it's there was a lot of that that I think went on for me, and I think some of that can be attributed to this idea of this code switching and trying to again find love and acceptance in all the places where. I didn't necessarily need it, but I wanted it. Wow. And thank you for sharing on those experiences. You know, I think that also kind of directs, oddly enough, right to, I mean, this is just a testament to your speaking, but it relates right to the article because the number one gap that they viewed within layers was between that personal and relational layer. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of people deal with that. I can't speak from you know, obviously your same perspective or anything like that, but just from like the queer community and from my like maleness as a music therapist, which oddly enough is like one of the small careers in the world where like men are not the dominated, you know, career path or whatever. Mm -hmm. But yet they still get paid more, but still they get paid. more. I, you know, I don't even know. I don't even know. It's wild to me. But yeah, kind of deciding is queerness going to be something that I'm going to utilize to propel my career, which is a weird thing to say. Mm -hmm. um, or is it going to be something that I have to adjust and not show in different settings in order to not be judged based on that and to be judged on my work, which is so, you know, well, it's very layered. It's very corrupt. <laughs> It's very layered and, you know, not that this is the, the end all be all answer. I, th to some extent, I think it, it very well may be a mix of both, right? I think there will be a lot of ways in which you use your queerness to propel what you want to do and where your interests lie. And I think mm -hmm. there will also be ways in which you make concessions in order to protect yourself from what onlookers say, like, I've done that on yeah. numerous occasions, right? Like I have 
set in groups in school systems with with teachers, with female teachers or and 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 kids who whose parents have maybe modeled a more traditional conservative uh, way of thinking. And so having having to alter how I say things and what I say in order to not get asked questions. Like I remember, ooh, I remember one time I was in a group and I had a young lady ask me why I wore earrings because I had my ears are pierced. And she was like, wearing earrings is a girl thing. And like hearing that shook me. (laughs) It shook me up because I'm like, because then I immediately felt less than. I was like, well, crap. So now I'm not enough of a man. (laughs) I was like, I already kind of had that thought because of the whole queerness thing and and like as gay men we're already not seen as as being the the standard of what a man should be and here i have this this little girl telling me i lean i'm even more that because my ears are pierced or i had another group where an older uh gentleman with down syndrome uh told i was wearing a slouchy beanie hat and he told me that i didn't need to wear that hat because god loved me and that i shouldn't wear hats like that because they are they were feminine and again being shaken (laughs) yeah that's i've never heard that (laughs) and really sitting with those things or having moments where someone in a group being in a group with kids and one kid calls another kid gay and the whole group laughs and me feeling frozen because I'm yeah. like, I don't know what to say. Right. Because my visceral reaction is I want to yell <laughs> and reprimand. But I'm yeah. like, this is therapy. So I can't really do that. And also, I don't want it to seem as if I'm too invested in this because then people will be questioning, well, why are you so invested in that? But also, I don't want these kids to think that gay is synonymous with something as being less than or being funny something to be laughed at and ridiculed. And so like all those things go in my head, go through my head. And in a lot of ways, I make concessions and I don't say anything. And I let the teachers decide whether they deal with it or not. And I try to proceed as originally scheduled in the program. Which, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and so, yes, I have definitely made a lot of concessions for the sake of, of my safety or for the sake of not being judged but I'm trying my best to to move in a way now where I'm like, oh, I try not to care as much. And I try not to be so caught up in the reception of how other or get caught up in how others receive me and really just kind of stay true to what works for me. And that's a lot easier said than done. <laughs> Something that we're all constantly learning. I'm sure you could talk to any therapist who's been in the field for 30 years and they'll be like, I have to change constantly. Nothing's ever stagnant. Right. You know, it's it's interesting because as you were speaking about that experience with individuals in the school setting, you know, that's that's one of those interesting times where you could really apply the the shifting of identities. And for me, I'm thinking, you know, as a therapist, and I've talked about this when I was in internship with my supervisor, but thinking, you know, if I wasn't a part of that identity, how how would I approach this? And I think if I think about it from a standpoint of like, okay, so they're still going for somebody using words that in their mind are offensive or are intended to be offensive in the tone, whether you would find that appropriate within a therapeutic setting, probably not because a group is going against like one person. But with us, the layer is that, you know, would would them finding out about our queerness affect their perception of us and then create a shift in dynamic of the group. Right. That's something that, is just so fundamental to this intersectionality. And I think that's just a really acute example, Mm -hmm. but that can lead into, you know, discussions on race and things like that, or groups that are safe spaces. And then, you know, it may be an open space. So white individuals may be allowed to come into those space. And then like those conversations or a perspective that might be thrown out, that's not necessarily like educated to its highest amount. So yeah, it's part of the therapy process. That's why I'm like, this is why therapists need therapy to talk about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, as far as time goes, it looks like we are wrapping up. I always like to leave a moment at the end of the podcast to allow yourself to say any last words on this topic that you just 
we just didn't have time to touch on. And then if there's anything you want to plug with yourself or ways that people can contact you. I think in terms of, of just last thoughts, I, I think my thought is just as music therapists, we owe it to ourselves to, to think about what authenticity looks like for us, not only in terms of our personal identities, but our identity as music therapists, right? Because I think that, I think there's a lot of ways in which we are not really being authentic to what music therapy is from how it's began. And I think a lot of that has happened with trying to be, again, accepted by stakeholders who control whether we get licensed or who control uh, whether we get jobs and keep our jobs and get paid a decent amount of money to live. And so I think I just encourage everyone to, to start thinking in those ways, like what does authenticity look like for you? And in a lot of ways that requires a lot of deep, deep rooted learning and unlearning of things and how we come to understand things, which is scary, but necessary. And in terms of plugs, you know, I do have that good old private practice that I just started, Attune Music and Wellness, and, you know, with COVID happening. And because I'm board certified nationally, I can really see anyone anywhere. So um, the focus for my, my private practice is queer people and queer people of color. So if there's anyone listening that knows someone who may benefit or who needs to talk to someone and maybe traditional talk therapy is not the route to go, please feel free to to look me up. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Attune Music and Wellness, as well as Instagram uh, at Attune Music and Wellness, and, um, or shoot me an email at freddie at attunemusicandwellness.com. The website is still under construction, so that is not ready to be viewed yet, but there are plenty of other ways to get in touch with me. If you have questions about it or if you have someone that you think just needs a space to be held for them, I am always looking to hold space for those who don't often get it held for them. Thank you so much for being on the show, Freddie. And I encourage everybody to tune in to our next episode. If you are having fun and enjoying the podcast or sharing it with other individuals and always feel free to look into the comments for the links to all the information that Freddie just said. If you'd like to see today's guest or learn more about the show, check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Voices of Music Therapy or on Twitter at VOMT Podcast. If you have any questions or if you know any innovative music therapist and would like to recommend them for the show, you can email us at voicesofmusictherapy at gmail.com.